1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing symbolism of the teachings, reminders through imagery. This is chapter 23 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path that Leads to Nibbana. In this chapter, I help you to understand the various imagery and artwork that's used in order to represent the Buddha's teachings. Because during his lifetime, he taught everything orally there wasn't books and there weren't videos or podcasts or facebook groups to talk in it was just all oral teaching and people learned the teachings and then they thought about them reflected on them and actually practiced them in their daily life and because the language that he spoke in it wasn't a written language the way that he would use in order to remind people of the teachings is that if you sat in a discourse with him and you learned something like the eightfold path for example then they had a symbol that would help to represent the Eightfold Path and you could recall those teachings and remember those teachings. And there were other various symbols that were used during his lifetime and afterwards in order to remind people of the teachings through imagery and artwork. And today, those things are still in existence. They're still being used even today. At a place like here in Thailand, they have temples all throughout Thailand And over many, many hundreds of years, they've been building these temples with construction, of course, but then also with artwork and imagery so that as the various people all throughout the countryside have donated money to build these temples, now there's so many temples throughout Thailand that it's almost like a activity that families will often do where they go around and they visit these temples and some of these temples are you know 700 800 1000 years old and they will go around as a family activity and they will visit these various temples and start looking around and kind of exploring these temples and they're quite large and some of them have quite a lot of land and with the teachings actually embedded in the architecture and in the artwork and some of the other aspects of building and construction of a temple, it's almost like a little bit of a scavenger hunt, that if you understand the teachings of the Buddha as a family or even as an individual, you can go into these temples and it's almost like a library. You can look at the artwork, you can look at the buildings and it speaks to you and the more that you understand the teachings the more you're in touch with them you can actually glean more and more information about these people who constructed the temple 800 years ago and they embedded this artwork and certain things in the architecture of the temple they're trying to share something with us it's like a decoding a message almost kind of like the uh, tomb drawings on a ancient tomb in egypt you can do this with temples. And because Thailand has this long history of building temples, it's now a activity that people can do. And because these temples are donated in terms of the land and the money to actually construct them, the Thais have the ability to now enjoy going around and actually seeing these various temples because the temples have been here for so long and they're just open and accessible to all people. In places where we might come from, like maybe the UK or Australia or America, temple construction isn't as old. It doesn't have as much history. So now... Since the last 50 years or so, temples are starting to be built in the Western world, and more and more of them are starting to be constructed with various artworks and things like that. So even in your home country, wherever you are, if you go visit temples, the things that I'm going to be sharing with you today, you might actually observe these symbols in the various temples that you go visit but over the course of many generations as more and more buddhist temples are built throughout the world they'll be able to embody these artwork and these symbols in order to create that same kind of atmosphere that we have here in thailand where people can go around and actually spend time on the weekend or during the day in order to see these various temples and kind of glean understanding and teachings from the actual construction and the artwork itself. If you don't visit temples, but you just kind of are interested in Buddhist artwork, there's lots of that online. There's lots of books that have Buddhist artwork. And the more that you understand about the symbolism of the teachings, but first understanding the teachings themselves, then when you look at this artwork either online or in books or other places, these artworks will actually speak to you more. So this is one of the reasons why this chapter shows up at the very end of the book, because once you understand the teachings, having been in this program for whatever length of time that you've been studying and studying the book that I share. Now that you understand the teachings, it's a good time to introduce you to the symbolism that's been used all throughout history to represent the teachings. So that when you go to temples, when you look at artwork, when you're involved in various Buddhist communities and you see any of these symbols, that you'll understand what it is that you're looking at. And it will actually help to deepen your practice because you'll be able to recall the teachings because of these symbols and seeing the imagery will remind you of the teachings so i would like to thank you for joining today i think it'll be a very interesting class to look at some of the imagery and symbolism as it relates to the teachings and give us a chance to kind of talk a bit informally about some of the things that maybe you've seen in various venues that you visited But I will first share with you some kind of standard things that you'll see in various temples and various artworks to help you kind of start getting acquainted with the various symbols and things that you're going to see in Buddhist art. So let's go ahead and start exploring some of this. Remember, if you have any questions at all as we go through the teachings and through what we're going to be sharing today, that you always have the opportunity to ask questions you can, in Facebook and YouTube, type in your question in the comment section. And of course, you can do that in Zoom as well. And then in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask your question directly. For those of you guys that are in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, if you put your question in the comment section, our moderator, Max, will be sure to get your question asked during the class. But if you're in Zoom, you have that extra ability to raise your hand and get any help that you might have with any questions or follow-up questions that you might have. Hello, all you podcast listeners out there. This is David. I would like to let you know that this podcast is related to chapter 23 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. In order for you to get the most out of this podcast, it's important for you to have the book in front of you and actually view the images that are being shared. You don't absolutely have to have the images, but it will certainly make your learning experience much better. So if you would like to download this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, just look inside the show notes of this podcast and you'll see a link there for the free book. Enjoy the podcast. So this very first symbol that I'm sharing with you, the one in the middle is the most common. This is what we refer to as the symbol of enlightenment, or some people might refer to this as the Na, N-A. I've heard people refer to it as that. This is the symbol of enlightenment, the one in the middle. This is the most common. The other two are also symbols of enlightenment too, but they're kind of variations, right? Because we know through learning the teachings about impermanence so there's more than just one symbol that represents enlightenment but the one in the center the largest one is the one that is most common that you'll see most frequently and if you understand the path to enlightenment this particular symbol represents it so let me describe it to you this symbol starts at the very bottom in the middle where you see it circling around and around it starts at that middle point. And the idea is is this is kind of like the beginning of whatever life we had long, 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 long time ago in this long stream of lives that we've had. There was kind of the initial life, whatever that was. And then we've kind of been winding around in this cycle of rebirth. We've just been winding and winding and winding and winding and this path has been very difficult that's why it's kind of wide and dark and kind of gray on some of the corners and edges but eventually we wind and wind and wind around the cycle of rebirth and then eventually we start getting access to the teachings and start to understand this path to enlightenment and that's where it kind of comes out of this circle and it starts progressing forward But as it's progressing forward, notice that the path is still very wide because the mind doesn't understand the path to enlightenment. It's not very clear. It's not very refined. But as you walk forward on this path, the path becomes more and more refined because you start understanding the path more clearly through learning and practicing the teachings. And then as you're walking forward on the path, you feel like you're walking forward, but then you take a couple of steps back. And then you kind of make this walk forward and you're walking forward and then you take a couple of steps back and then you walk forward and take a couple of steps back. But notice how the path is narrowing, narrowing, narrowing and getting more and more narrow until all the way up at the top at the center where you eventually get to the top. And that is kind of the ascension to enlightenment where you finally attain enlightenment and you narrow in on the teachings and you actually experience the enlightened mind. So this is the symbol of enlightenment. And you'll oftentimes see this in artwork in various places. You'll see it sometimes on Buddhist statues at the third eye. The third eye is right in between the eyebrows, between the two eyes. And because it's a symbol of enlightenment, it's oftentimes on the statue of the Buddha, right in the center of the eyes. Now, it doesn't mean that he had this symbol tattooed on his forehead in the middle of his eyes. It's just the artist's representation of the Buddha was enlightened. You'll sometimes see this on paintings or drawings. You might see it on the base of a Buddha statue. Some of the bhikkhus or the ordained practitioners will have these fans that when they're chanting and they're lined up, chanting they'll kind of hold a fan in order to kind of not allow their eyes to gaze out at the audience it kind of blocks their view and on this fan it has different artwork and you'll sometimes see this image on the fans kind of embroider it into the fan itself and of course i've seen some people that even get tattoos of this particular thing this particular symbol at different parts of their body as well So that's what this symbol is. And the other two on the sides are just showing impermanence, that it's essentially the same concept, that at the bottom of the image, it's winding around very confused. You know, you can see the bottom It's just winding around and not really sure where it's going. And then, boom, it gets on the path. And now it makes this nice, beautiful ascension. But still, as it's ascending up, it goes forward and then it comes back. It goes forward, takes a couple steps back, but it narrows in closer and closer to enlightenment. And this is how you can oftentimes feel when you're on the path to enlightenment. Your meditation practice, if you're judging it, can feel like it's going really, really well. And then you feel like you take a step back. You can have these periods of two, three, four weeks or months where You're not experiencing any discontentedness, any anger, any frustration, and then something can happen, and boom, there can be a lot of anger, frustration that comes in, and it feels like you're taking some steps back, but you've got to keep your mind focused on the goal, which is forward progress, and you're always making forward progress, and that's what this symbol is showing, is there's always forward progress, and you just keep your mind focused on that forward progress, not being dissuaded or pushed back just because you've maybe experienced some anger or frustration here and there. Don't allow that to get you down. Just keep working towards the ultimate goal, which is the enlightened mind. So let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on this particular image, or if you've seen this image anywhere and you'd like to share about it, or if you've seen something similar and you have some questions about it, you're welcome to ask any questions about it.
2: David, do we know the origin of this image? Does this date back until the time of the Buddha
1: himself? I have a feeling that it does um, because these imageries, uh, pretty much all these images seem to go back to the lifetime of the Buddha. But we don't really know for sure because the Pali text, from as far as I know, doesn't have any imagery in it. It doesn't have any artwork. It's all text. But I'm pretty sure this all of these images that I'm going to be sharing with you and all of the representations of these images go back to his lifetime because that's how they originated is because they weren't writing things down and it was an oral tradition, they spoke about the teachings, they described enlightenment, they described the full path, the four noble truths, the five precepts and all these different things, but then they used images to kind of capture what it is that was being discussed so that when somebody sees it it reminds you ah that's what it is and it kind of helps you to recall the teachings that you heard from the buddha or one of his monks
2: right so these were in a way used instead of words as we would write things down today
1: instead of writing yeah instead of instead of books or texts or things like this since people were sitting and listening orally and learning the teachings orally and remembering them, once you kind of had the teachings in your mind and you heard them in a few discourses, then you could observe these images and recall. And it's kind of a way to help you remember the teachings and kind of further soak them into the mind.
2: Thank you, David. Look, I can see that we have a couple of hands up. So let's go to James first. Over
1: to you, James.
2: So, David, I was wondering, the symbols on this side, do the
0: circles at the top and bottom have any particular meaning?
1: I'm not sure, 100%. I'm sure they do to the artist or whoever created these, but uh, I don't know myself what those might mean.
0: Okay. I was also wondering about
2: tattoos. You mentioned that sometimes people have these on tattoos. Is there any relevance to tattoos in the practice, or is that perhaps recommended or discouraged
0: in
1: any way? Yeah. The Buddha, when he taught the monks, he taught the monks not to do tattoos in terms of don't learn the skill and actually apply tattoos because he was really interested in them, focused on learning and practicing the teachings so that then they could offer the teachings to the lay people or to the household practitioners. Because it's the household practitioners that are going out and working and having all these jobs. And then as they Build up and accumulate resources, they're sharing those with the ordained practitioners. And the ordained practitioners are living off of the effort and resources of the household practitioners. There's kind of like this interdependency between the household practitioners and the ordained practitioners because it's the household practitioners that are working and providing the resources, but it's the ordained practitioners who are learning the teachings and practicing them, getting more and more enlightened that now because they're getting the this womb in which to learn and practice the teachings where they don't have to work, their work is to learn and practice the teachings so that they can become more and more enlightened. And the kama is that as the household practitioners are giving food and resources, the ordained practitioners are giving teachings. So the food and resources are helping the ordained practitioners to be able to live this life where they don't have to focus on work and a house and a car and clothes and medicine and all this other stuff. And then as a way of repaying and kind of giving the gamma back to the household practitioners, they're supposed to be giving teachings to benefit their life. So the Buddha wasn't interested in having the ordained practitioners spend their time and effort and energy to learn this skill of tattooing because he was interested in them actually learning the teachings and practicing the teachings so they could become more enlightened and share those teachings with the household practitioners that this other task or this other activity of tattooing to actually give tattoos was kind of taking them away from the actual responsibility of learning, practicing, and sharing the teachings. In addition, I suspect that the Buddha also wasn't interested in the monks' Giving tattoos because it kind of takes the practitioner's minds away from non-self. Because what non-self is all about is not having the mind falsely identify with the body as being this is body is David and this self-identity and the self-image. So if monks are going around decorating and beautifying the physical body, then it's kind of taking the practitioner's mind in the direction of well, this body is mine and I do need to decorate it and I do need to look good for other people and the more I beautify this body, the more I feel good about it and the more I look and feel good in front of other people where the Buddha was trying to teach through the teachings of non self to let go of the body and thinking this physical body needs to be decorated or beautified in any particular way but just be satisfied and content with what it is. So he taught not to tattoo in terms of the monks or ordained practitioners learning the skill. But in terms of what would be good for an actual practitioner, it's up to you. It's your choice. If you have a craving, desire, or an attachment to decorating the body and getting a tattoo, and that's one of those things that you need to fulfill in order to extinguish it, then go ahead and do that. But just keep in mind that that tattoo by itself isn't going to create any extra peacefulness or calmness in the mind. It's through disassociating with this physical body and not allowing the mind to falsely identify with this body that is going to ultimately bring the peacefulness of the enlightened mental state. And if you would like to get a tattoo, go for it. If you prefer not to have a tattoo, then don't. But just be sure. That you look at any kind of craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, because oftentimes what happens is someone gets one tattoo and then it's another one and it's another one and it's another one. and Not that there's anything wrong with tattooing, but oftentimes it's coming from craving and we want to decorate the whole entire body and add more and more and more. It's just one more tattoo and one more tattoo and one more tattoo, searching for This external pleasure or this external satisfaction, it's just like, you know, one more pair of shoes, one more piece of jewelry, one more this, one more that, where an enlightened mind can potentially go inward. The goal is that as you train the mind, that you're looking inward and finding that peacefulness and contentedness internally, rather than relying on this external thing to create that for you because it won't create it. But there's nothing wrong with tattoos. There's, you know, the Buddhist teachings aren't about getting everyone to conform to a certain way of being. So he never taught to not get tattoos, but you can kind of surmise if you understand the teachings of non-self, you can kind of see very clearly that a tattoo is really decorating the physical body and you really need to make sure that you're not allowing the mind to falsely identify with this body as being the self if you're gonna to choose to get tattoos. Thank you, David. You're welcome. And one thing I will add to that is if you do decide to get tattoos, I don't suggest that you actually get any tattoos representing the Buddha himself, like his face or something like this. Like there's occasionally people who will do that. And sometimes people will even put Buddhist tattoos very low on their body, like around their ankle, or I've even seen a Buddhist tattoo on their foot. Like in Buddhist culture, this is like really disrespectful because in Buddhist culture, the feet are considered the lowest part of the body, the most dirty, the most degrading part of the body, and the head is considered to be the most sacred. Where, like in Buddhist culture, you wouldn't just walk up and tap somebody on their head. And likewise, you wouldn't put your feet towards anybody, you would always keep your feet close by because if you can imagine people walking around pretty much without shoes during the Buddhist time, your feet are quite dirty. And typically before you went into a house, people would wash their feet before they went into somebody's house. So even though you've washed your feet, you've been walking around in dirt and mud and all these different things. And the last thing you would wanna do is sit down in the middle of somebody's living room and point your feet in the direction of somebody else. So it's considered to be very low level, dirty part of your body and that wouldn't be the appropriate place to get a Buddhist tattoo is on your foot or your ankle or your leg. you know. If you're going to get any kind of Buddhist tattoo, I would think you would wanna do that kind of in the upper body as a way of kind of showing more respect. Um, but where you do it and if you do it is totally up to you. Okay, let's go to you next, Rhonda. Good morning, everyone. Um, my question is about the first symbol. Um, specifically and at the top there's a circle
2: and inside that circle there's a symbol it sort of looks like a 35 but it's not a 35 i've seen this symbol many many times and ironically uh, it's been on, on a number of tattoos that i've seen um on on men
0: in particular but um I, I've seen it in artwork. I've seen it in
1: in many places, and I just wondered, as a standalone, I've seen it. So I just wondered if this one had um, any particular meaning in the Buddhist practice. Your eyes are much better than mine, Rhonda, because I can't <laughs> I can't see inside there where you're seeing the 35. But I don't I blew it up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that might mean. Uh, I can't even see that, but from what I've described to you so far is pretty much what I know about what this whole symbol means. There could be very subtle things that people might say in addition to what I share, but what I've shared is what I essentially know about this particular image. But yeah, your eyes must be really, really good, Rhonda. (laughs)
2: I just saw a quick
1: message flash up and it was Nick and I and he may be right I I think what he
2: said was it it may be the um symbol
1: yes I've seen that and that looks like a 35 um yes but that's
2: that that may very well be it
1: that's not from Thai culture but I've seen that from I think it's Indian culture if I'm remembering correctly okay
2: well thank you thank you
1: very much you're welcome
2: Okay, thank you, Vonda and James and David. It seems we have no more questions this time.
1: Okay. So let's go to the next bit of imagery. And this particular image is what we call the Dhamma wheel. This image most frequently is represented with eight spokes. Okay. The Dhamma are the teachings of the Buddha and Of course, the path to enlightenment, the eightfold path, is the path to enlightenment. So the wheel itself is representing the cycle of rebirth and this continuous cycle that people are in and all of us are in until you actually attain enlightenment, you've escaped that cycle of rebirth. And it's the Eightfold Path, which is the path leading to the elimination of discontentedness in the mind that leads to the elimination of this cycle of rebirth. So each one of these spokes represents a step on the Eightfold Path. So right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration are each of the eight spokes. And you'll see this in different artwork, different statues. Here, the one on my far right, as I'm looking at it, it's on the right. That's just kind of a cartoony kind of picture that you'll see in a lot of different places, a lot of different artworks. The one on the far left is what we call like a temple marker. When they build the main building of a temple, they will mark out nine locations and say kind of this is like the land of the actual temple. But the actual temple complex is much larger than just where the main building is. But this main building will have eight markers on the outside in the eight directions of the compass. And then in the middle, there's a ninth marker, which is essentially right in the middle of the building, but it's buried down under the ground. So if you ever go to like a temple construction, what they do is they have these big balls and they will, the lay people or the household practitioners will provide donations and they will help the temple to actually do the construction through the donations. And the household practitioners will drop these big, huge balls, um, probably the size of a very large basketball, and they'll drop it down into the ground and then they bury it and they kind of mark out the land. And then once the temple's constructed, they will put these markers above the ground to mark where these markers are in the ground. And there's eight in eight directions of the compass. And there's one in the middle of the actual building itself. But that one doesn't get an external marker. It's just in the ground itself. And the markers are different from each temple to each temple, right? You can imagine that in Buddhist culture, there's no interest in trying to build every single temple to look exactly the same because they understand impermanence. So I've never actually been in two temples that look exactly the same. Every single temple is completely different. But this particular picture is of a particular temple marker that is using this wheel. But not every temple marker will actually use this wheel. This is just one place that you'll actually see it. And then the picture in the center. Here I'm talking with a student at a local forest temple here. And there was a whole group of students with us. But there you can see a Buddhist statue behind me and you can see that the Dhamma wheel was actually behind the head of the Buddha. And this is a common place that you will see even in artwork. You will see that they'll place the Dhamma wheel behind the head of a Buddha. And this is another one of those little known facts that people aren't familiar with, is that the reason why they do this is because the whole idea behind a Dhamma wheel, Is that when a Buddha awakens to enlightenment a Buddha actually spins or turns this Dhamma wheel and the location of the actual Dhamma wheel is at the top of the head of a Buddha so where the top of the skull and the back of the skull come together there's going to be a flat spot the point where the skull and the back of the skull meet, there's like a flat spot on the top of the head. And when a Buddha awakens from enlightenment, they will use their hand and they will spin this Dhamma wheel counterclockwise. And the significance of this is that this is seen as a stepping forward for all of humanity. Because as we talked about yesterday in our Pali Canon in English program, the arising of a Buddha in the world to become awakened and enlightened as a self-awakened Buddha is extremely rare in the world. And when that happens, to be alive during that time, it's very rare, but it's also a very great time to be alive because the teachings to attain enlightenment are going to really shine in the world because this Buddha, this individual Has attained enlightenment on their own and they have deep, 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 profound wisdom of what it takes to actually attain enlightenment. So a Buddha awakening and turning that Dhamma wheel on their head, it's seen as a big step forward for civilization and for humanity because now during that lifetime of the Buddha, the teachings to attain enlightenment are really vibrant in the world. They're well situated in the world. They're Readily accessible through this human being who has attained enlightenment in that particular life as a Buddha. So when the Buddha awoke over two thousand five hundred years ago, he would have turned this Dhamma wheel and it's considered to be a stepping forward of civilization, that at that particular point, civilization had taken a big step forward as a species, were're all able to evolve due to the teachings that he shared. And then any new Buddha that awakens would know this and would turn the dhamma wheel on their head as kind of like a symbol or a significance of humanity stepping forward. So when you see a dhamma wheel, it represents this cycle of rebirth. It represents the eight spokes, represent the eight steps on the eightfold path, but you will oftentimes see it placed behind the head of a image of what someone is representing as a Buddha, either a Buddha statue or an artwork, if they're depicting him, they will oftentimes put this Dhamma wheel behind his head because that's where the Dhamma wheel is essentially located, is on the top of the head of a Buddha. So any questions on this one? We have a question from Judith. Regarding the turning of the wheel counterclockwise, is
2: there a meaning about whether it goes clockwise or anti-clockwise?
1: Not as far as I know. I just know that it turns counterclockwise. It spins counterclockwise. But I don't know why it's counterclockwise. We have a question from Manal. Are these the same wheels which people spin at Thai temples? I know that some temples will have bells that they spin. But that's not really a Thai thing. But a lot of Thai temples will incorporate that. It's really from Vajrayana Buddhism, which comes much later after Theravada Buddhism. And ties tend to incorporate things from other traditions to allow people to feel comfortable. But I've never seen one of these that actually gets spun by any individuals. But I've seen bells. If you've got a picture or a video or something, Manal, that you've got and you want to send it to me, I can look at it and take a look at it. But I've never seen that myself.
2: Occasionally, David, I've heard of people talk about the third turning and the fourth turning, and I wasn't sure what it meant. Perhaps you can uh, uh, shine, shine light on that.
1: Yeah, some people say that there were multiple Buddhas before Gautama Buddha. They say that he wasn't the first Buddha, and I've seen some places in the Dhamma that say that. But I've also seen places in the Dhamma where the Buddha is saying that he's the originator. He's the originator of the path, the discoverer of the path. So. Because the Buddha is so important in my life and his teachings have impacted my life so much, I usually tend to think that he was the only Buddha, but this goes against what most people typically think. They actually think that there were multiple Buddhas. This is the only conflict that I've actually seen in the Pali Canon where I've seen teachings from the Buddha speaking that's in the Pali Canon that says he's the originator, the discoverer, the declarer of the path to enlightenment. But then I've also seen other teachings in the same Pali canon where the Buddha is talking about other Buddhas. So I'm not sure why that discrepancy is there. That's the only conflict that I've actually seen. So if there were previous Buddhas to Gautama Buddha, then there would have been multiple turnings of this Dhamma wheel. And what people say is Gautama Buddha, I think, was the fourth turning or the fifth turning of the dhamma wheel and there were previous turnings before him but essentially what it's coming down to is a buddha has awoken and we kind of use this story of turning of the dhamma wheel just to kind of signify this awakening of this being who struggled through countless 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 lives to get to this enlightened mental state and once a buddha awakens they're going to dedicate the entire rest of their life to sharing the teachings into the world to help as many people as possible to attain enlightenment and leave the teachings in a condition that upon their death, they can continue to help people attain enlightenment. So it's a huge step forward for all of humanity to have a Buddha in existence. And this Dhamma wheel is one of the ways that we signify that. We have a clarification from Judith. She asks, so Gosman Buddha didn't
2: talk about previous or incoming Buddhas?
1: I've seen him talk about previous Buddhas, and I've seen him talk about the next Buddha as well. I've seen both of that in the books, and you'll see that when you get these and when we study. We're going to actually be exploring that. But I've also seen in his Dhamma in these books where he talks about I'm the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of this path to enlightenment. So this is the only conflict that I've ever seen in all the Dhamma teachings that I've actually studied that is based around Buddhas, is how many Buddhas or if there even was Buddhas. And a lot of people, the vast majority of the world, will say there has been other Buddhas besides Gautama Buddha. But from my standpoint, I don't see any evidence of that. Sure, there's stories of it. And sure, there's people that will have statues that will say, oh, this was the first Buddha. This was the second but where are their teachings? We don't see any of them anywhere. And because I don't see any evidence of their teachings, and I have this Pali canon where the Buddha says, I'm the originator, the discoverer, the declarer of the path. And he even says, unarisen and undeclared before me, which is very clearly spells out that, hey, I'm the one who discovered this path. So even though we have some writings that it appears that the Buddha may have been talking about other Buddhas. This evidence is so much more clear to me that I feel like he was the only Buddha. And because I don't see any evidence of any previous Buddhas here around me, I don't see any texts or any teachings or nobody can share what did those Buddhas actually teach and where are their teachings today. So since we're lacking evidence of those other Buddhas, and we only have a little bit of text here and there that's even describing what these Buddhas might have been. But we've got a ton of evidence that shows that Gautama Buddha existed. And we've got this evidence that says he was the discover, declare, originator of the path undeclared prior to him. This to me says that, okay, he was the only Buddha. But in reality, it really doesn't matter. Uh, Whether there was 100 Buddhas, or there was two Buddhas, or there was 20 Buddhas, what really matters is that you learn and practice the teachings now to attain enlightenment now in your lifetime. How many Buddhas actually existed, it doesn't really change the fact that, okay, you've got this unenlightened mind, and you need to learn and practice the teachings in order to attain enlightenment. So I always like to bring it back to that and put it into perspective that, It would be interesting to know exactly how many Buddhas there were, but in reality, it really doesn't matter because the goal is to train this mind right now in this life to attain enlightenment.
2: I have a question about this right-hand image, David. Right in the center, there's a circular image. Almost looks a bit like a yin-yang symbol, but with three little sections in there. I was wondering if there's any significance to that, whether that's just artistic
1: You guys have much better eyes than me. I can't see that at all. (laughs) I'm sure there's some significance, right? Like artists don't do things by mistake. You know, artists always have meaning behind what it is that they're putting in their artwork. And oftentimes with particular artwork, it's only the artist that truly really knows. All the rest of us are just kind of guessing but in terms of the things that i've shared with you are things that are kind of common knowledge that people know but then there's all these little uniquenesses that really truly only the artist actually probably knows and all the rest of us just like to speculate and guess and that's kind of what makes it fun to look at artwork is to try to get into the mind of the artist and what were they thinking what were they trying to create what's the message they were trying to share with us And uh, it just kind of like intrigues the mind. And that's one of the fun parts of going to temples and looking at all these different artworks. Sure, all right, well, thank you,
2: David. We have no more questions.
1: Yeah, and by the way, while we're talking about visiting temples and going to see these different artworks, as you've probably seen with a lot of the pictures that I share around the different online classes and Facebook and social media, that's one of the things that I do is I take students out to different temples here in Thailand and, and show you these teachings and show you these things in real life. So that's what this one picture is As I was leading a student tour to a forest temple and taking them around and showing them different things at the forest temple. And then after this, we left and went to another temple up on the mountain, which is a different type of temple it's not a forest temple that is considered a city temple but it's actually up on the mountain so they have different flavors and different feeling at each of the different temples so that's something that you can do if you come here to thailand is you can go out and look at the different temples on your own or you can take a tour or if you're here learning with me then i can take you out and show you a lot of this stuff here at the temples in thailand really fun thing to do All right, this next picture is the picture of some lotus flowers, and lotus flowers have been used throughout Buddhist culture as symbolism of enlightenment as well, and there's kind of two different aspects to the lotus flower. There's one where you'll see a closed lotus flower, which is the one on the top, and then you also see an opened lotus flower. And the reason why they're using a lotus flower, and I'll get to the meaning of what it is, but the reason why they're using a lotus flower is because a lotus will grow typically in a pond or some kind of water, and the roots are down into the murky mud and deep, deep, deep down into the murky mud. And then it grows, and it grows this nice long stalk, oftentimes much higher than the water itself before it will finally bloom. And the idea is is that the roots going down in the deep murky mud is symbolizing craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing where the mind holds on into this polluted murky mud, right? That's what the roots are symbolizing. And then as you learn and practice to train the mind, it's like growing this stalk, this really strong stalk or stem as it ascends and rises over this murky water and that's what's essentially happening as the mind becomes more and more enlightened. It's ascending up over this murky water with this nice strong stem. Well, then eventually the lotus flower is in this kind of bud, this closed bud. And when you see a closed lotus flower, what this should remind you is that every being has the potential to attain enlightenment someday. So a closed lotus flower, and you'll see this not only in artwork and things like this, but you'll even see this if people have Buddhist statues. They'll put either real lotus flowers or fake lotus flowers, and they'll have them closed, typically. And the closed lotus flower is to remind you that, hey, you have the potential to attain enlightenment. You just haven't bloomed yet, but you have the potential. And then once you see the bloom and the opening of the lotus flower, This is a symbol of enlightenment itself. So oftentimes around statues of the Buddha, they will have open and bloomed lotus flowers. Or even the statue of the Buddha himself, if you look really closely at the base of the statue, they will oftentimes have a big bloomed lotus flower built into the actual statue itself. And the Buddha is kind of sitting on a bloomed lotus flower representing enlightenment, that he's attained enlightenment. So we use these lotus flowers to remind you of the deep craving-desire attachment into the murky mud and then the strength and ability to grow your practice and rise above that craving-desire attachment with the potential to attain enlightenment, but then eventually actually attaining enlightenment by blooming and that's what it feels like when you actually attain enlightenment, it's like you're blooming into the world and now you can see so much more of the world. Things are more colorful, things are better smell, the world is more bright and more brilliant. It's like you've bloomed into this you know, wonderful human being. So any questions on the lotus flower?
0: Do people
2: still tend to see this as a symbol of enlightenment, David, in Thailand and possibly in India?
1: Yeah, quite a bit. You'll see here in Thailand, lots of lotus flowers, either in artwork or real lotus flowers. If if a temple is set up where they have like big Buddhist statues, there'll be lotus flowers typically out at the front of the temple that you can give donations to the temple and they'll give you lotus flowers. And then you go in and you place them in the front by the statues, as a way of kind of um, showing your respect and gratitude and appreciation to the Buddha for his teachings. And, um, you'll see Lotus flowers around quite a bit.
2: I also just wanted to um, check with you why we, we don't read about the Lotus Sutra so much in, in Theravada. I know that it's talked about a lot in other Buddhist um, traditions, but it seems like the Lotus is maybe more of a prominent symbol in those other traditions than Theravada. But, uh, Appreciate your
1: thoughts on that. Yeah, I haven't read the sutras in the way that a lot of people read them. Some people read the entire sutra and they'll know it as the Lotus Sutra or the different names. The way that I learned the sutras is through these books in these very manageable, digestible bits. And I found these to be much more penetrating because. From what I've seen in some of these sutras, they can go on and on and on for you know a good 30, 45 minute read, some of them. And by the time you get to the end of it, it's just like so much information <clears throat> that's maybe cluttered in the mind because an unenlightened mind is very cluttered and very muddled. So I never learned the teachings that way in the long form sutra. So I don't even know what the Lotus Sutra is. But these particular teachings in the Buddha Wajana books that are just very potent, very specific, you know, one, two, three, four pages long, this is how I learned them, not as part of the bigger sutra, but as an extract. And for me, these are much more potent because they give you exactly what you need for a particular topic or topic area, rather than having to read the entire sutra, which may have... 4568 different topics in any one given sutra. So, I don't really have an answer for your question there Max about the lotus sutra or, you know, how other traditions are maybe using lotuses because I've never found a need to dabble into Mahayana or Vajrayana or Zen Buddhism or any of these other traditions. I was always interested in learning what it was that the Buddha was teaching because he was the fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. And I felt like it's important to learn what he taught. And all these other traditions, while I'm sure there's people that find lots of value in them, I've never needed to go outside of the Theravada tradition to find anything else because everything that I've discovered and learned... In the Theravada tradition has led exactly where the Pali Canon and Gautama Buddha said this unshakable mind where eliminating discontentedness and this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy can be experienced through the teachings that exist in the Theravada tradition. So I have not never had a need to go outside into any other tradition. I have very cursory knowledge of these other traditions, but it is common For practitioners and teachers of these other traditions to come to Theravada teachings because there are certain things that they feel like they need in order to kind of fully round out what it is that they're trying to understand to actually attain enlightenment. So I don't see very many Theravada people going into those other schools, but I see more of those traditions coming to Theravada teachings to try to kind of fill the the gaps of what it is that they're missing in their tradition
2: okay we have a question from Javier he asks why do people build home altars and he has actually also shared an image Uh, I think though the, the question why do people build home altars is a good one
1: yeah so from the lifetime of the Buddha there's been a lot of change a lot of impermanence During the lifetime of the Buddha, there were no images captured of him. We know there wasn't any cameras, right? There wasn't even any artistic renditions of him, and there weren't any statues cast of him. He wasn't interested in people capturing his image or worshipping a statue or anything like this. So by the time he died, all they really had were physical descriptions of him that were apparently written into the Pali canon and the artwork that i use that image that i use that you see on all the different things that i use that was an artistic drawing that was done based on the description of him in the pali canon and this looks like a human being from that region of the world as opposed to some of these statues that look like almost non-human in some cases but by the time that gotama buddha died there was no images or statues of him he didn't ever teach for there to be statues of him or anything like this but later what ends up happening is people that were part of buddhist teachings and buddhist culture start coming in contact with the greeks and during that time frame the greeks were making statues of their gods because greeks had many different gods that they believed in during that time frame and when the buddhist people saw that the greek people were making statues of their gods, well, the Buddhists kind of looked around and like, well, what can we make a statue out of? Well, let's make a statue out of our Buddha. And if you look at the Thai statues of the Buddha or any statues from the Theravada tradition, they almost look very Greek in nature. Their lines, the lines that they use, the artistic rendition of the image that they're casting for Buddha statues have somewhat of an appearance of Greek statues and Greek artwork. But by the time you get into Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism, the images of the Buddha actually change. And typically what you'll see is Thais will cast statues that look very Thai. Chinese will cast statues and have artwork that look very Chinese, Japanese, and so forth and so on. Every culture kind of wants Gautama Buddha to be from their culture. So they cast statues and artwork that look very much like themselves. So as these artworks and as these statues are being created more and more and impermanence comes in and people get farther and farther away from the teachings of the Buddha, people start making these altars and these special spaces where they're now not just casting a statue, but they're starting to make offerings of flowers and food and they're starting to bow to the statues and some people even pray to these statues there's all kinds of superstition around the statues some people think that the spirit of the buddha is actually in these statues and they'll tell you that the spirit of the buddha is in there and they're actually going to pray to the spirit of the buddha but this is really really far away from what the buddha ever actually taught but the people believe this And some people believe that that's what this path is about, and they can't understand anything different until they choose to reach out to a teacher who's actually teaching what it is that really leads to enlightenment. So the reason why we have these statues and we have these altars is because people wanted them they craved them. They had desire, attachment. The mind had this mental longing with a strong eagerness. And when they saw that the Greeks had their statues, well, hey, we want statues too. They still had craving, desire, attachment. So the main thing that the Buddha was teaching to eliminate is ultimately what precipitates and creates the desire to actually have these artworks and these statues that represent him and have these spaces. But it's important that when you see statues or you see people even bowing and worshiping or praying to statues, that you don't judge them. You don't think badly of them, but you have compassion for them and loving kindness, you know, concern for their misfortune. And you understand that not everybody's going to have the same exact practice as you, and they don't need to. But someday, either in this life or some future life, If they get in more contact with what the true teachings are, then they can make better progress on this path to enlightenment. And it's important that because you're learning the real teachings and you see the truth and the condition of your mind improving, that you don't look down on others or judge others, because that would be opposite of what it is that these teachings are truly about.
2: Thank you, David. We have no more questions this time.
1: All right. So let's see what the next one is the next one here is kind of a combination of two that i've already been talking about this symbol of enlightenment where it circles around at the bottom and winds its way up but then there's a lotus flower at the top right so if you understand some of the imagery that i've already talked about and some of the ones that i will talk about as we go forward You're also gonna see different variations because of impermanence and different artists will have different renditions. They might actually choose to create something that combines multiple things. And this is where it can get really fun that if you know this symbol of enlightenment is the symbol of enlightenment, and you know a lotus flower is also a symbol of enlightenment, here you see an artist has actually put both of these things together in order to represent enlightenment. And this is just one that I got off the internet as I was looking around and looking for different artworks. I was like, oh, wow, this one's kind of cute. Somebody actually combined two together, and this is all impermanence, right? So let's move to the next one. I, I don't suspect you guys have any questions about this one, but if anyone does, feel free to ask. The next one that I would like to share is this one where oftentimes in Thailand, they will build temples with steps, a lot of steps leading up to the temple, or even if it's just a building on flat land, they will have steps that lead into the main building because the building's going to be raised up a little bit higher. It's not going to really be on ground level. And at the front of the steps, there's almost always, not always, of course, because of impermanence, but almost always, particularly in Thai culture, there's going to be this big kind of almost dragon looking snake at the two sides of the stairs. And what we call this in English is we call it the serpent king or the naga, okay? This serpent king, and the reason why these statues and this artwork is at the front of the steps has a particular story to it. And I'll tell you the story. And then after I tell you the story, we can extract some teachings from this. Whether this story is actually true or not, I don't know. We'll never really know. But whether it's true or not doesn't really matter because as you hear this story that I'm going to tell you, if you understand the story, you can start to extrapolate some teachings that will actually help you on your path. And by the time you understand the story, then I can explain to you why it's situated at the front of the stairs of most temples here in Thailand. So the story goes that during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was this serpent king who was a serpent. So they are in the animal realm, but they were so close to becoming a human that they were able to transform their body from a snake or this serpent king to look like a human. And because this snake was so close to him being reborn into the human world, he was able to do that even though he was an animal. And what he would do is he would transition his body, his form from a snake into looking like an ordained practitioner, like a bhikkhu. And he would kind of like sneak into the Dhamma talks with the Buddha, looking like a monk. And he would have a robe on and he would have a human body, but In reality, he's a snake, but he would appear on the outward appearance to look like an ordained practitioner. And he would go in and he would sit and listen to the Dhamma talks of the Buddha. And he would learn the Dhamma and he would practice the Dhamma. And this was helping him to accumulate better and better condition of the mind, even though he was a snake and he had an animal consciousness. Well, as the Buddha was talking, as I've shared in previous talks, It wasn't uncommon for people to fall asleep during his talks because as you learn the teachings more and more and the mind awakens, oftentimes as you're releasing the stress and the burden of carrying around craving, hatred, and ignorance, that the mind becomes very sleepy. This is why when you meditate, you might actually become very, very sleepy because it's the mind awakening. You're laying down the stress and laying down the burden, so therefore you become very sleepy. So as the Buddha is talking in his Dhamma talks, the monks start falling asleep and so does this serpent king who's appearing to be like a monk. And when they all fall asleep and their consciousness goes to sleep, this serpent king loses his consciousness because he's sleeping and he transitions back into a snake without his awareness. And then slowly the ordained practitioners, the bhikkhus, start waking up And they start seeing this snake in and amongst their people. And of course, not all the monks are, are enlightened. So they start becoming fearful. And they start becoming scared of seeing this large snake amongst them. And the people go off and they get the Buddha. And they bring the Buddha over to where they are to observe what's going on. And of course, the Buddha being a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, He's not scared. He doesn't have any fear. He knows that he hasn't caused any harm to this snake. So, no harm's going to come to him. So, he walks over and he starts conversing with the snake of, like, you know, what's going on? You know, why are you here? And the snake says to him, like, I would like to learn the Dhamma. I would like to attain enlightenment. And it's said that the Buddha kind of is like, ah, you know, silly snake. You know, you're still in the animal realm. You can't attain enlightenment yet. You're still in the animal realm. You're going to have to wait until you're reborn into the human realm in order for you to attain enlightenment. And it looks like things are going pretty well for you because, you know, you're able to transition yourself into becoming a human. So it looks like your next birth is going to be a human. And that's the time when you can learn the Dhamma and practice the Dhamma and actually attain enlightenment. But until then, I would like you to no longer come to my Dhamma talks because you're scaring all the monks and they're getting kind of afraid of you. So I would like you to, to not come into the Dhamma talks anymore. So the snake actually agrees with the Buddha, but he tells the Buddha, he says, since you won't let me actually learn the Dhamma and actually I am not able to attain enlightenment in this life, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to stand guard. I'm going to be the protector of the Dhamma, and anybody who chooses to come past me is going to have to have good intentions to learn and practice the Dhamma in order to attain enlightenment, and I'm kind of going to be the protector who protects the Dhamma from any evildoers. So this is why they put the artwork on the front steps of a temple to represent this story of this snake that comes out and stands guard and protects the Dhamma. And the idea is, is that when you start walking up these stairs, that you don't have any ill will against the Dhamma, that you have no interest in disparaging the Dhamma or causing harm to the Dhamma. Your only interest is to support and encourage and motivate and help the Dhamma grow in the world by passing through this snake and moving up these stairs. The things that you can extrapolate from this story is, of course, that only humans and heavenly beings can attain enlightenment. In the animal realm, you can't attain enlightenment, right? So that's a important takeaway. Another important takeaway is that enlightened beings don't have fear. Unenlightened beings are going to have fear. So you need to learn to ensure that you eliminate any fear. And it's important that when you enter into these temples and things like this, that you do so respectfully, and that when you go there, you go with good intentions. And what you'll notice is the grounds of temples here in Thailand, at least, are very calm and very peaceful, and people wear a respectful clothing and ensure that when they're showing up to a temple, that they do so respectfully with good intentions. So those are just some of the things that you can extrapolate from this story again, whether it's true or false, I don't know. I've never seen a snake today that can transform itself into a human, or at least I've never observed that happening. If there's any human walking among us that is actually a snake, I wouldn't know it. But I've never seen that with my own eyes. So I have a tendency to think that this story is an embellishment, but it does contain within it some of the teachings of the Buddha. So that actually helps us to learn and understand the Buddhist teachings. So that's why I share it. And also because you're going to see these large serpent kings pretty much at most temples. As you go around Buddhist temples, you'll see them at the front of the steps and it can remind you, thank goodness I'm not an animal. I'm a human. I can learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment and train your mind to eliminate any fear. And this can be a good reminder for you through these symbolisms of the teachings. So any questions on the naga or the serpent king?
2: In this middle image, David, it looks like he's wearing some kind of saddle. Is that right?
1: Yeah, what you're going to see is, you know, like a place like Thailand, the people who live in Thailand today actually at one time resided in the land that we call northern Vietnam or southern China. Back then it wasn't. Northern Vietnam and Southern China, but that's the original region of the world that the people who live in Thailand today actually originate from. And then as the Chinese were kind of expanding and putting kind of pressure down on those people, they actually started migrating westward and then eventually came down into what we now know as Thailand today. Well, these people have a bunch of indigenous practices of animism and other practices, a lot of superstitions and things like this. And we know this migration happened because there's linguistic experts and people who look at cultural traditions and spiritual traditions. And you can see that when you people migrate, they don't just pick up everybody and then move. There's actually a smattering of people that stay along that migration path that have the same ethnic background, the same genes, the same linguistics, the same culture, all kind of sprinkled along that migration path as it comes down into thailand and today in thailand there's buddhist practitioners who consider them buddhist but when buddhism came we think that it actually came from sri lanka and it came from kind of the region of the world that we call today nepal or northeastern india and it migrated down into sri lanka and then the historians think that it kind of jumped from sri lanka Over into Thailand. And when things like that come into a region of the world, it's not like everybody got transmission of the Buddhist teachings on Friday, and there was some memo that went out and told everybody, all right, get rid of all that stuff that you guys were doing before. On Monday, we're going to start with Buddhism 2.0, and we're going to all start with Buddhism 2.0 fresh from the beginning, right? That's not how these kind of teachings come into a region of the world like Thailand. So because these indigenous people made their way into Thailand and they were practicing very animistic and folk traditions and very ancient traditions from their ancestors, when Buddhism came in, they just kind of like melded all of it together. And this is why... The Buddhist teachings in some communities here in Thailand and other parts of the world, it's very fuzzy. It's very gray of exactly what is Buddhism and what are these animistic practices or what are these folk traditions that have just been around for centuries. So what you're seeing here in this picture with kind of a blanket and some of these pictures you might even see like sodas or fruits or things like this. What some people here believe is that this artwork of the serpent king actually has a spirit in there and they're going to be making offerings to this artwork. So when you go into these temple complexes, not everybody understands the teachings in the same way as you because of impermanence. So you're going to see all kinds of different things going on in any one particular temple complex. And this is one of the reasons why I bring the students to this particular temple because this particular temple has a real mixture of all kinds of different things. And I can very clearly walk students through a temple and show them very clearly, this is folk traditions, this is animism, this is Theravada Buddhism, this is Mahayana Buddhism, this is Vajrayana Buddhism, and you can see it very clearly the more that you understand the teachings. But for the average local person who might participate at this temple, to them, it's just all Buddhism. But in reality, it's a really kind of a merging of all of these different traditions together because that's the way they got introduced into the world that people still held on to their folk traditions and their animism when Buddhism came in. And what my goal has been in teaching the Buddhist teachings is to make it very clear what are the Buddhist teachings and what really truly leads to enlightenment. Even being here in Thailand and amongst all of these different folk traditions, which I understand because I've been interacting in the Thai culture, you can see very clearly the more that you learn the Buddhist teachings and the more that you practice those, you'll be able to see very clearly what are the Buddhist teachings and what aren't the Buddhist teachings. And this particular thing that you're asking a question about, Max, is somebody has made kind of an offering of fabric to this particular statue as a way of paying respect to the spirit, which is not part of the path to enlightenment, but to the average Thai person, they might think it is. But again, we don't want to judge that person. We don't want to look down on them. It's just where they are in their practice. Because at one time... I used to have tons of statues. I used to bow to statues. I used to offer statues food and fruit and incense. And I used to have a spirit house in front of my business in America. And we did little ceremonies every morning for the spirits. So those things were kind of like an entryway into understanding what it is that I understand today. And what those things led me to understand is those things don't lead to enlightenment. So it actually was part of my journey. So when we see other people who are into these kind of things, we don't look down on them. We don't judge them. That's just where they are in their journey. And just be appreciative of where you are in your journey that you have actually come into contact with the true pure teachings of the Buddha to be able to train your mind and get closer and closer to enlightenment.
2: We have a question from Rhonda. There is a saying, there are snakes among us. While I don't believe it is used in a positive way, I wonder if there is something to it in this view that it is not
1: negative. Potentially. Potentially. I'm not sure. The story that I've told you about these snakes is the one that I know. And I've shared this with some Thai people and some others, and they had never heard of this story before. But in the Buddha vajana books, there's actually a story that you're going to find. It's in the 12th book. So it's going to be really towards the end of the Pali Canon in English program that you'll actually see this story that I'm telling you about is actually in the books. So we'll get to it, but not everybody understands this story that I'm sharing with you. But I think it's a really interesting one. And whenever I walk into the temples, it always reminds me of, thank goodness I'm human right? It always reminds me, you know, ensure that you don't have any fear and also enter into the temple with good intentions to support and encourage the the sharing of the Dhamma throughout the world. And then if I see people making offerings, it reminds me of, yeah, I was there at one point in my practice as well. And I'm really pleased that I've been able to get access to the true teachings of the Buddha and now be able to share them with you. And what I do on this particular tour is I take people to a forest temple first, and then I take them to this temple. And you see a very different perspective between the forest temple and this particular temple. And the forest temple, they're typically pretty remote and they're very basic. So these particular artworks at the forest temple we go to is essentially just sandstone, it's just kind of a brown tone. But by the time you get to this temple that I take people to, you can see it's much more ornate, right? It's painted gold and green and, you know, some teeth showing there, some white teeth and some pink gums and things like this. Because this particular temple is much more visited, so it has a lot more money and income. So they tend to make it more ornate, where the forest temples aren't typically visited as much, so they don't have as much income and as much offerings and donations to be able to make their temple look as nice but also they're not really interested in that typically the forest temples are people who are really deep into learning and practicing the teachings and they're not really interested in having necessarily a beautiful temple they're really interested in focusing on the teachings of learning and practicing the teachings um, so you'll see a difference between the two types of temples. If you've ever seen pictures of like lots of gold and very ornate temples, those are what I can share with you is maybe like city temples, even though they're not always in the city. But it's one particular sect of Buddhism in Thailand where the forest temples are a different sect. And 90% of the temples and monks in Thailand are of this kind of, what I'm calling a city temple, where only about 10% are of the forest tradition. But they're very different in terms of the way they approach the teachings and in the way that they set up their temples.
2: Another thing you sometimes see outside temples, David, is this green-skinned being, often carrying a sword, sometimes in pairs, standing at front
1: gates. I was wondering what they are, what's the significance of these creatures? Yeah, we call those yak, Y-A-K. They're essentially like big giants. And they have various mythical, magical stories that go with them. And I don't even really know what a lot of those stories are. I just know that they're called yaks. They're big giants. And there's uh, lots of stories behind them. I think what they are supposed to do is they're supposed to eat bad gamma or like dark gamma or something like that. But again, that's like really far away from the Buddhist teachings. The only way to get rid of unwholesome gamma is you've got to train your mind and clean up your life and clean up the mind in order to improve the condition of your mind and the condition of your life. There's no rites, rituals, ceremonies or worship that you can do through these giants or any of these statues or artwork. They're not going to do anything for you. It's just artwork.
2: Okay, thank you, David. We have no more questions this time
1: okay let's see if we have any more in here yeah here we go this is a really common one the picture in the middle is actually a picture of the tree the famous tree that people say that the buddha attained enlightenment under okay but we'll talk about that in a moment this particular tree is of a particular variety of tree and the leaf is depicted in these other pictures around that i have here Most people refer to this as a Bodhi tree, but in the book, I give the scientific name in case you're interested in that. But this leaf has become a symbol of enlightenment itself because as you notice, it's got this big base and then you see that little sliver uh, going up, right? And kind of the ascension of enlightenment. So oftentimes you'll see people use this leaf as a symbol of enlightenment. Because most people will say that the Buddha attained enlightenment under this tree. But from everything that I know, I don't think that that's actually what the Buddha said based on his teachings. Because there's not just one moment where you attain enlightenment. It's not like a switch. You don't turn it on or turn it off. What the Buddha talks about and from what my experience has been and I think probably what your experience is becoming is it's a gradual progression. It's gradually learning, gradually applying the teachings and practice in your daily life and gradually training the mind to awaken more and more and more to this enlightened mental state. So there's not just this one moment under a particular tree that he attained enlightenment, but most people will attribute this tree to to where he actually attained enlightenment. And from the story that I know is, and also what I experienced is this gradual progression of enlightenment is what he was doing when he was in the forest. He was gradually awakening the mind over multiple years to attain enlightenment. And the story that I know is that he contemplated for seven weeks at this tree and he contemplated whether or not to share the teachings with anybody, because he knew that he had attained enlightenment. Because a Buddha attaining enlightenment, it's very clear to them that they've attained enlightenment, and it's also very clear to them that they are, in fact, a Buddha, which means he deeply understood the teachings of what it took to attain enlightenment. And if these teachings were going to come into the world, it was going to be through him. But since he had the experience of studying alongside of other students and knowing what they were doing was so far away from what it was that he was, had learned that led to his enlightenment. He thought that if he started teaching, that people would reject it and the world wasn't truly ready for what it was that he had to teach them. So for seven weeks, he contemplated at this tree whether or not he should actually teach because he didn't think the world was actually ready for what it was that he had to share. Well, we know the end of this story is that at the end of the seven weeks, he ultimately does decide to teach. He does share the teachings. People do learn them. People do become enlightened. And over the course of his lifetime and beyond, more and more people attain enlightenment until we are where we are today, which is where people have gotten further and further and further away from his teachings, where they've essentially become non-existent on the planet. Sure, we have temples, sure we have ordained practitioners, but the quality and the purity of his teachings have essentially disappeared exactly as he predicted. And his teachings are now at a point where it's timed for us to all learn and practice these teachings and start bringing them back into the world so that more and more people can understand what are the true teachings that lead to enlightenment. Not this mystical, magical, mythical, legendary stuff. Not this worship and rites and rituals and ceremonies, but the true teachings that you can learn and practice that lead to training of the mind, that you can independently observe the truth for yourself, acquire wisdom, and then through that training with that wisdom now the mind awakens and it becomes more and more peaceful calm serene and content with joy these teachings that i'm sharing with you are the teachings of the buddha that can be brought back into the world and now revitalizes teachings throughout the world so that more and more buddhist practitioners can learn what it really takes to attain enlightenment so this particular tree is associated with the Buddha's attainment of enlightenment, but it really is this gradual progression. And you see that in the Dhamma teachings. I think that either the part that we just studied or some parts that we're going to study in the future, you'll see him talking about this gradual progression to enlightenment, that it wasn't this momentary instantaneous enlightenment. So if you hear anybody talking about that, that's not what the Buddha actually taught, and that's not what you're going to experience. It's this gradual progression. And if you see this leaf, then it's an association with this tree and with actually attaining enlightenment. So any questions on this particular tree or the leaf?
2: You mentioned, Dave, this leaf is a bit like the enlightenment symbol we saw earlier. I'm interested to know if you think that Symbolism generally is something that exists naturally in the world, or is it purely what we make of it?
1: It's us assigning meaning to the symbols, right? So this tree that the Buddha happened to contemplate at for seven weeks, it just happened to have this leaf, right? And this leaf gains that meaning. And it just so happens that the shape of this leaf and that little swivel coming off Or that little uh, thin string there kind of lends itself to appearing very much like what we would think of enlightenment as you ascend to this higher consciousness. So it just so happens that it worked out that way, and we've assigned this meaning to it. Or, you know, as we develop this symbol of what enlightenment is, you know, there was first had to have been the understanding of this cycle of rebirth this wide path, this gradual progression, and then the stepping back and stepping back and stepping back, but eventually becoming more and more narrow. So as people experienced enlightenment, then people understood it. Then it inspired certain artists to create artwork and symbols around what it is that they understood that led to their enlightenment. So once people attain enlightenment, if they're artistic and creative, they're still going to be artistic and creative. Or if they're a business person, they're still going to be a business person as they progress. They'll just be a much better business person or a much better artist because their mind will be so much more peaceful and calm, serene and content with joy. But it's the meaning that we're associating with these symbols. But we had to have first had these experiences before we could actually assign meaning to these things.
2: Okay, we have a question from Alan relating to the statues. He asks, as I understand it, in early Buddhism, the creation of statues of the Buddha wasn't encouraged. Instead, elaborate footprints were used in places like Sri Lanka. Are these symbols common in Thailand?
1: Yes, you'll see the footprints as well. And uh, people will make artwork and they'll Uh, say that these are the Buddha's footprints, but they're so large, I mean, they couldn't have been a human's footprint. And some people here in Thailand believe that the Buddha actually came here at some point, but there's no documented evidence that we can say with 100% certainty that he did come here during his lifetime. But of course, there's lots of people that would like to believe he did. And that makes them feel very good when they think about those kind of things but it all comes back to what's really important on this path is your enlightenment but there are artworks here and lots of symbolism around the foot and the footprint and oftentimes what you'll see with artwork is you'll see a big large foot and it'll be separated into little boxes so they'll have lots of lines going vertically and lots of lines going horizontally and there'll be these little squares and in each individual square there's typically uh, some depiction of like a, a rooster or a cow or a goat or a pig. And there'll even be some humans in there as well. And what people say is that this is a representation of the bottom of the Buddha's foot, but these little boxes with these animals and humans in there are actually representing his past lives. So people will use this artistic representation of the bottom of his foot. To not only represent that, okay, this is the Buddhist foot, but they'll say that these are little squares, are representations of his past lives.
2: Something I've seen in Thai temples, David, is statues of three small monkeys. The first monkey covering its eyes, the second one covering its ears, and the third one covering its mouth. Is this a traditional symbol in Buddhism?
1: I haven't seen these too much, but from what you're telling me, those are three of the senses, right, that they're the, the covering. And the idea is, is that we need to guard our sense faculties in order to eliminate our central desire so I can see where those kind of things would be represented. In a lot of Buddhist temples, you will see statues of animals, and you'll even see animals themselves. You'll see dogs and cats and birds, and Buddhist temples are a collection of a lot of different beings alive but also you'll see statues of roosters and goats and pigs and all of these are typically around to remind you of the lower realms in the animal realms and they're always very happy it's not like Doo, do, do, do. you're going to go to the animal realm you've got to hurry up and learn the buddhist teachings you know it's not it's not the fear or guilt people into learning but it's just a little reminder that you know like okay you know um stop being so complacent because that's one of the biggest challenges for most people on this path or all the people who aren't on this path all the people who are still out there using drugs and alcohol and involved in sexual misconduct and stealing and lying and killing and all those things that you know some of those things that some of us used to do in the past too there's lots of complacency in the world and there's lots of harm that's going on in the world So if you finally start getting on the path and you finally start showing up places to learn and practice the teachings, yeah, there's usually some statues and some actually real animals around. And it's just kind of that light, subtle reminder of kind of keep things headed in the right direction because there's always the chance that you can be reborn and back into the lower realms. And now that you're human, don't be complacent. Don't be lazy. You know, when you're on the fence of whether you should meditate or not, and you're not quite sure, meditate, right? Just go forward. Just meditate. You've got that 20 minutes. Meditate. You're a little bit sleepy before going to bed. Just meditate. Even if it's just five minutes, just meditate. You know, don't allow the mind to become complacent. Oh, I'll read that later. or I'll do that later. Now, of course, if you've been pretty diligent in your study and you've been studying quite well, which I know a lot of you guys have been studying with me for a while, and you take off a day or two, three, four, here and there, and you don't really get to uh, reading or investigating the teachings as much because maybe you're actually busy practicing the teachings. That's fine. You know, don't feel like you have to have your nose in a book every single day, but just don't allow the mind to ever be complacent. Don't ever give up. You know, I put this in the book somewhere where i just say never ever ever give up i think it's in the meditation chapter because the mind and the ego and all the things that go on in our life you know there's a lot of things to dissuade you from pursuing this path and don't allow any of that stuff to stand in your way don't allow complacency to ever get rooted in the mind just always be progressing forward And don't ever feel guilty or shameful or beat yourself up because things didn't turn out the way you thought but just always keep your mind focused on the goal of gradually progressing forward on this path so these statues of the animals kind of help us to keep us reminded to not be so complacent
2: got it well thank you david we have no more questions at this time
1: okay i think this was the last one yeah that was the last one so I will go back to full screen so I can see all of you guys, or you guys can at least see all of me. And um, just thank you guys for joining. I think this is kind of like a nice kind of informal talk. It's kind of nice to see some pictures from some other places. I've got tons and tons and tons of pictures from all the different temples that I've been to, at least in the last couple of years. I visited about 200 or more temples over the years just as kind of like looking around and seeing things. As I've shared with you, going into the temples, for me, I'm always visiting Thai temples, so the the monks and the people that are there all speak Thai, and I've learned a good amount of Thai, but not nearly enough to be able to learn any kind of teachings with any of the monks or anything like that. But it's really fun to go to these places and see these temples and just be reminded of the teachings. And a lot of these temples will have animals, like I mentioned, some of them will have lakes and fish and things like this. And one of the things that we like to do at the Buddhist temples is we'll feed the animals. And our thought is, is that if we can just help the animal eat and not have so much craving and desire, then maybe they will get to... A better life and be reborn into a better life in their next existence. So it's very common at Buddhist temples for there to be lots of animals and you'll see people actually feeding the animals as well to help them maybe get to a better life. Because if you're an animal, one of the best places that we consider to be an animal is to actually reside at a Buddhist temple. Because even if that animal hears just one or two words of the Dhamma and they understand it, it might actually lead to a better rebirth in their next life. So visit temples, come to places like Thailand or go to Nepal or India and see some of these places where the Buddha actually lived his life because you can take this knowledge that you have of the teachings and you can observe it in artwork and in architecture and things like this. And it makes Buddhism really tangible when you know that the teachings that you've learned have led to an improved condition of your mind and improved condition of your life and you can stand in this temple that's 800 years old or a thousand years old or what have you or you can stand at the actual tree that the buddha contemplated for seven weeks knowing how impactful his teachings are and have been for your life to be able to stand at some of these places and draw in the feeling of being in these places it can really be invigorating and kind of be very impactful and help you to eradicate any kind of complacency that might be there so thank you for joining for today's class and i would like to welcome you and invite you to return on wednesday at the same time, nine o'clock tie time, where we're gonna be doing loving kindness meditation. We will be doing breathing mindfulness meditation, but we're also going to be focused on loving kindness as well this Wednesday. And then on Saturday, we're gonna be exploring the latter part of this book following Dhamma's trail. So we're gonna be going from chapter 26 all the way to the end of this book. So if you've got this book, you can be reading that this week so that on Saturday, I can help you with any questions that you have there. And then on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 24, which is misunderstandings of the Buddhist teachings. Because as I just shared, there's lots of different practices that were going on as Buddhism made its way across Asia and into other parts of the world. So, even though what you've been learning up to this point are the Buddhist teachings that lead to enlightenment, it's important to share with you some of the other things that you're going to see when you go to some of these temples and some of these communities and some venues that are practicing what they call Theravada Buddhist teachings. What David has taught you is there's no such thing as rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship in the Buddhist teachings But some Theravada temples that you show up to, the very first thing they're going to be doing is rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship because they're misunderstanding the teachings. So I dedicated this chapter towards the end of the book that now that you've learned all the teachings and you're starting to understand them better and better, now let me help you understand some of the misunderstandings and things that you're going to see in the world in terms of Buddhist teachings so you can see very clearly What are the Buddhist teachings and what aren't the Buddhist teachings? And that will help bring your focus and clarity to illuminating this path to enlightenment more and more clearly so that things don't get gray and fuzzy and confused for you. So now that you've learned those teachings in this book, now we'll talk about next Sunday. What are some of the misunderstandings that you're going to see in the world, even within the Theravada tradition? Because as we've talked about, His teachings have pretty much disappeared and become invisible to the naked eye until you've really deeply studied his teachings so this chapter is going to really help to clarify that for you and bring the teachings into more clarity and further illuminate this path to enlightenment so i'll see you either wednesday saturday or sunday or maybe all of those times in the meantime remember you can reach out to me for help through posting and facebook through private message, through scheduling a private appointment with me if you'd like to have a personal discussion. So, until I see you in one of these ways, have a really wonderful rest of your day. Remember to treat everyone very polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. See you next time. Sawadiha.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward Buddha.